Inquiry into Morrison's power grab, ACTU Climate Plan for Jobs Summit, Neoliberal Higher Ed, and good news on PFAS. This is The Week on Wednesday. Hello and welcome to The Week on Wednesday. I am your co-host, Ben Davison, and I am joined by the great, the glorious, the mother of Germanicus, the <laughs> author of QAnon and On, A Short and Shocking History of Internet Conspiracy <laughs> Cults, the one of the headline performers at the Byron Bay Writers Festival this weekend, my wife, Anne Batham. <laughs> Hello, um, husband. Hello, wife. Oh, dear. Hello. How are you? I'm big in Japan. I know, I know. I sort of set up that question for you to give us that answer because it turns out, everybody, that Ben has found some new podcast charts. The man who loves statistics almost as much as he loves talking about Australia's strategic oil reserve problem. Which I'm winning on, which I'm winning on now, by the way. He's winning. We will give you an update in a second. But he has found some new charts and discovered that as of this week, the week on Wednesday is one of the top 500 most listened to news podcasts in the world. Yes, and one of the top 17 politics podcasts in Japan. So uh, hello and welcome to all of our listeners in Japan. Uh, It's very, very, we're honoured to have you with us. Yeah, uh, Japanese listeners, I'm a huge fan of Japan, have spent a lot of time there in Yokohama and in Tokyo, one of my literal favourite places, a place I'm always trying to get um, Ben to visit with me. And, yeah, I'm thrilled that (laughs) we're popular in Japan. Like I really cannot tell you, I feel like culturally we're all travelling to the right place. Indeed, indeed. And huge thank you and shout-out to all of the listeners who've liked and shared the last couple of episodes. We've had two massive episodes in the last week or so, and it's really because, you know, people have gotten behind the week on Wednesday yet again and continue to do so. It's been two years we've been making this podcast nearly 600,000 downloads over that time. You know, we continue to keep pace with the uh, big corporate media outlets and, of course, we'll continue to punch above our weight, not just in Japan but around the world but particularly here in Australia. And speaking of punching about our weight, and I'm just going to claim this as an outright victory for us, the Deputy Prime Minister of this country, the member for Corio, Richard Miles, was on the media this week talking about, what was he talking about, Ben? What did Richard Miles, the Deputy Prime Minister, talk about this week? Oh, everybody, I just so you know, there is a video link between Ben and I when we do this remotely, and the most glorious smile has just spread across his face. Look, full credit to Deputy Prime Minister and Minister for Defence, Richard Miles. He has obviously been listening to this podcast and a shout out to you, Richard, who you're clearly listening today. I imagine you've got nothing better to do than listen to us. But the Strategic Oil Reserve, which I've talked about and talked about and talked about, and which the MUA, the Maritime Union of Australia, has pointed out and the Australian Workers' Union has pointed out time and again, is not safely stored here in Australia, but is stored in a reserve in a depot, in the desert, in America, across <laughs> the other side of the Pacific Ocean, far away from Australia, through multiple shipping lanes, past the you know Solomon Islands, which we know is a key strategic position in the Pacific, 
And obviously, oil tankers are quite susceptible to things like torpedoes. Uh, Richard Miles has made the point that he's reviewing this situation. He doesn't think this is right. He thinks that we need to have strategic oil reserves held here in Australia. And quite frankly, I think I've slept better as a result. I never thought I would say the words, thanks to Richard Miles, I'm sleeping better at night. But there you go. Thanks to Richard Miles, I'm sleeping better at night. It's the transformative power of government. (laughs) It is. Speaking of the transformative power of government, let's jump into it because this week, like last week, we have seen revelations about what the last government and the shadow government of the last government has was up to. The shadow government of one person, as it turned out. That's right. I mean, Scott I mean, shadow governments, you know, this idea that there's a government that exists beyond the go- government, these sort of unelected mandarins who pull all the strings, the secret puppet masters, they're the stuff of like pretty C-grade Hollywood movies and obviously QAnon conspiracy theorists. And it is just... Literally amazing to find out that we did have a shadow government in this country, but it was only one person and he didn't actually seem to do anything, which is in the realm of not the point, given the fact that shadow governments, like I said, are a bit C grade Hollywood and not what we would describe as the mechanism of a healthy, functioning, democratic government. That's right. Well, let's break it down. I know lots of people who are listening to this episode will have already heard us discuss the five portfolios and the things that Morrison did and didn't do when he took on those portfolios. So we won't break down the dates and the times and all those things for you. You can pick up those in episode number 101 or the last weekend wrap. All that information is there for you. You can also Google it, check out the links that we have on our supporter page, buymeacoffee.com slash week on Wednesday. Lots of links you can follow. What's happened since then, of course, is that Prime Minister Albanese asked the Solicitor General to basically give some advice. What does this mean? This guy has secretly taken on these ministries. He has done something in some of them, but in others he doesn't seem to have done stuff. Is it illegal? Are we in trouble? What's the situation? And credit to Prime Minister Albanese, he he is being very methodical. You know, I was able to catch his press conference yesterday where he said, look, I'm going to run a government that's going to take advice. We're going to do things properly. We're not going to rush off to jump to conclusions. We're not going to draw a line under it because it's politically expedient to do so. We're going to go through this in a proper way. Now, the Solicitor General has said the appointments were valid, right? So let's be really clear from the outset that what Morrison did was not illegal. And he makes that point himself in his long, rambling Facebook post about this issue. Not illegal. Fine. Because if there's any place for self-justifications, it's Facebook. That's right. Using using the well-known soapbox that is Facebook. The, the bigger point, the bigger issue, is about whether or not it was consistent and in accordance with the principles of responsible government. And and this is a really kind of nuanced thing, right? Because in Australia, most people probably aren't even aware that while we have a constitution, much of how our government is run is down to convention and practice and history. And that all of that bundled together forms what's broadly called the principle of responsible government. That is that you don't act irresponsibly 
just because you could possibly get away with it. What the Solicitor General has found is that actually Scott Morrison's behaviour was not consistent with these principles. It was off the leash, man. That is exactly <laughs> what it was. Scott Morrison off the leash. And and that as a result of that, it's undermined people's confidence in executive government, it's undermined people's confidence in the Governor-General, and it raises questions for people about the functioning of our democracy. So, you Which know, is bad in a democracy, by the way. That's yeah. bad because democracy is great. Like Winston Churchill has this quote, and forgive me if I paraphrase this badly, it's like democracy is a terrible system but also the best one we've ever had. Like I'm a huge, I describe myself as a democracy enthusiast. You know, I genuinely believe that the best decisions for a community are made by the community. Having the right to vote, universal enfranchisement, electing the people to represent you who are who you believe to be the most competent in making decisions about how the community should function with checks and balances and accountabilities within that and to destroy the trust that a mechanism exists to represent the will of the majority of the people and accommodate also the will of the minority of the people as well to represent everyone is terrifying. It is genuinely terrifying the amount of damage that man has managed to do. And it really is a huge amount of damage. And quite frankly, you know, Prime Minister Albanese, can I just call him Albo? Do you think we can get away with that? Here? Yeah, everyone calls him Albo. Just call him Albo, right? You, you know, with all due respect, Prime Minister. Minister Albanese. Yes, yeah. Albo. We're calling, it, we're calling it Albo. If you don't like it, you can ring into the show and let us know. Um, then we'll know you're listening. Ha ha. Um, on, on the phones that we don't have. <laughs> okay, sure. <laughs> That's right. Uh, get in contact on our social media, folks. Lots of people do. Um, but Albo has instructed the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet to do a couple of things. The first is to work with the Governor-General to actually ensure that appointments are properly gazetted. Because one of the things the Solicitor-General found is that while traditionally there has been a gazetting of, and that is basically a public record, of appointments made to administer departments, there's no rules around that as such, and therefore... Morrison didn't break any rules. And this is where it comes back to that responsible that principle of responsible government, right? So Albanese, Albo has asked for them to codify how those things are done, which obviously we need to do now because we've had numpties like Scott Morrison just go off and do whatever. He's also said that there's going to be an inquiry into the multiple ministries and the processes that it led to them and how they were then communicated or not communicated to people and that that will be a non-political investigation and inquiry led by a preeminent legal expert, which I think is a really good thing, right? But, Van, one of the things that kind of has annoyed me and I think it's annoyed a few people is that Morrison's Facebook post, you know, on that great uh, platform of record, really kind of says, well, I've been fully vindicated and I did nothing wrong. And of course, I'll happily, you know, participate in any review of what happened during the pandemic. As uh, long as it's genuine. And it and it has to include, and any genuine review has to include the actions of the states and territories. Now, we should be really clear here, no state premier 
has been found to have secretly taken over ministries during the pandemic or really at any time that I can recall. So this is clearly an attempt by Morrison to muddy the waters, right? No, he's. I can tell you what he's doing. He's doing Trumpian goalpost shifting. This is a standard Trumpian tactic. You know, oh, yeah, I'll agree to the process. If the process accords by these principles that I decide myself, no, 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 nothing. And let me tell you, he won't cooperate because it won't be genuine and he'll demand that some completely made-up thing take place. Oh, yes, there should be an investigation into how many hats Daniel Andrews kept in his third drawer. And if there isn't, and Andrews going, I don't even have a third drawer. Oh, yes, it's a witch hunt, more denials. This is standard flood the zone garbage that is from the modern like right-wing playbook. And I just want to say, like on, on an ideological level, that this is actually quite horrifying because the way the balance used to work was that conservatives were invested ideologically in institutions. Institutions was the whole conservative project. You know, we must maintain traditional marriage because that institution is strong. We must maintain the church because church authority is strong. It keeps us spiritually, morally in line. We must defend, you know, the Westminster system of government and we must protect, you know, the judiciary and executive branch and all of these conventions are important because we've developed these things and we must preserve them. And this is what conservatives actually used to be really committed to, that this idea that immortality is is rooted in the maintenance of tradition and institution. Mm. And, the, and the modern conservative movement is not conservative at all. These guys just shred anything. It is just absolutely naked, minute-by-minute self-interest. You can see it in the Trumpian project. You can see it in whatever the hell circus Boris Johnson was running in the UK. And you can see it in Morrison. It's do whatever you want. Draw power to yourself, shred institutions, up in tradition, don't obey principles. And I just remember like how they all went so absolutely bananas when Sally McManus said she believes in the rule of law when the rule is just when the law is just and the law is right. And they were like, oh yes, but you know, you'll break the law, you lawless breaking thing. And of course, what have they been doing? absolutely tearing these things up. And the Solicitor General's analysis is really interesting because it's like they're actually confounded. Like institutional lawyers, positions like the Solicitor General, these guys are a by-the-book kind of people. You know, we've been very close to people who've been lawyers in that particular realm and it's like things are done this way and these are the rules and these are the law. And the idea that you would just make it up as you go along is confounding like it, it is so you can see the sort of institutional struggle of going, yes, it wasn't illegal, but you don't do that. Yeah. And yet it was done because this is what the modern right is. It is absolutely radical. It is radical self-interest and power at all costs. And look, it's really interesting when you say flood the zone too, because that's absolutely what they're doing. We've seen Jane Hume out. We've seen Susan Lay out. You know, all of the all of the um, conservatives are out there going, you know, Labor isn't talking about issues that matter. Barnaby Joyce on Insiders, and I covered this in the weekend wrap, saying that, you know, people aren't talking about this. They're talking about modular nuclear reactors in the checkout lines at IGA, which is possibly the most bizarre line in Australian political history. And that says a lot given just the comments Barnaby Joyce has made in the past. But 
the reality and is that I've been an eye shop at an IGA and I just want everybody to know definitively modular nuclear nuclear reactors have not come up. Not and I also say this to I want to be very clear about this point with Barnaby Joyce. Ben and I live in regional Australia. We live in a part of regional Australia where community campaigns absolutely cut sick against power lines, where there is a massive, massive community campaign in Bacchus Marsh against the importation of toxic soil, which was going to be buried in an underground tunnel. If Barnaby Joyce- It wasn't even toxic. It wasn't even toxic. It wasn't even toxic, but the transportation of soil to an underground tunnel was just absolutely set off the community. You know, like there was an uprising in Bacchus Marsh about this issue. I want to know where Barnaby Joyce thinks that you're going to put a modular nuclear nuclear reactor, given the fact that regional Australia is saying no to power lines. Yeah, look, it's a it's a pretty it's a pretty uh, slippery slope, Barnaby's argument, because modular nuclear reactors in every home doesn't quite seem like the Fallout Four paradise that maybe he thinks it will become. Look, it is. Absolutely phenomenal! This entire um, this entire situation, and I mean, one of the things that struck me this week, I read that you know Morrison did this on the advice of Christian Porter, who was at the time Attorney General, uh, and that you know people kind of knew he was doing this in cabinet for the health portfolio, and then this accumulation of portfolios occurred over time in secret, and that in the end. One of the portfolios that he accumulated was actually Christian Porter's portfolio when he had moved out of being Attorney General due to the various scandals that he was involved with, uh, and he had become industry. Uh, I think it was Industry and Science Minister, uh, and and he didn't tell Christian Porter. Like it, you know, the level of duplicity and backstabbing and power at all costs is so ingrained in this mentality of Scott Morrison and and many others in that party, it has to be said, that even the person who helped create the mechanism by which Scott Morrison was able to break these conventions, was able to go against the principles of responsible government, was himself, was himself stabbed in the back and betrayed by Scott Morrison. I'm sure that comes as no great surprise to anyone, but I think it's worth remembering that these people have no loyalty to each other, and we can certainly expect no loyalty towards the Australian people. No, no loyalty, no transparency, and no honour. That is the modern right. And I think it's starting to show through, Van, because there has been some polling uh, recently. I think it's the Resolve poll that's uh, put out in the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age that has shown Labor's support surging by nine percentage points. Uh, to 42% of the primary, which would be the highest primary vote uh, federal Labor has had uh, since I think I think they would be even slightly higher than what Kevin Rudd got in 07. And the coalition's primary has dropped by eight percentage points to quite an anemic 28%. And, and strikingly, there have been big climbs in Victoria and New South Wales for Labor and declines for the Liberals in both those states, telling because, of course, there will be state elections in November for Victoria and March for New South Wales. It shows that the Liberal brand is contaminated by these sorts of things. You know, Petty Dutton is being referred to as Mr. 17%. I mean, that is incredibly low 
An incredible. Oh, I was going to say, you were going to say, it's incredible that he's reached 17%. A man who literally was the subject of a newspaper headline, he is not a monster. <laughs> the only time that anyone ever has to say headline, he is not a monster, is when it's pretty, you know, compelling argument to be made that you are, in fact, a monster. But I just, I want us to sort of revisit something that Ben and I talk about a lot is about how there is the Labor Party and there are the anti-Labor parties. And the Labor Party, because of what it represents, which is the electoral expression of the organised movement of working people, absolutely sets afire everyone who would like to keep working people down. And that there is always, that it doesn't matter if they are non-Labor parties, they are acting in coalition to stop the election of Labor governments, whoever they are. They can pretend to be progressive, they can pretend to be conservative, they can pretend to be you know, spaghetti monsters, it doesn't matter. Although I'd say that the spaghetti monster is probably an inherently progressive concept. It doesn't matter. The point is that the labour movement exists as a, a collective enterprise that recognises ideologically, you know, that unity is strength, that a fist is stronger than five fingers and brings people together in concerted collectivist political channels. And when labour are out of government, all of the anti-labour parties demonise what a Labor government will look like and people are told that Labor are bad, that Labor are just like the Liberals, that Labor are not just like are just terrible, they're all communists but they're also all conservatives and Labor are bad, Labor are bad, Labor are bad. And the reality, which has obviously been learnt by people in Queensland, Victoria, the Northern Territory um, and obviously Western Australia pretty conclusively and I think people are pegging it up in South Australia, is Labor governments are great. Like Labor governments do endlessly progressive things. In Victoria, free kindergarten, free TAFE, a massive infrastructure investment, all of this like climate mitigation infrastructure being built, proactive policies um, of climate action, a treaty with Indigenous people, all, like targeted mental health support, all of these like support services for LGBTQIA people, actually accommodating diversity in the community, developing systems that are adaptive, all of these things. People quite like them. Um, you can look at that, that, that rise in support because what is the mm. Albanese government doing wrong, actually? Like nothing. They're well, even going, they're even beginning an investigation into the location of the strategic oil reserves, Ben. Like, I know. I mean, they have my vote before, but now I might try and vote twice. I'm kidding. I'm kidding, AEC. But it, it is it is interesting because that contrast is very, very stark. We've seen, you know, we've discussed on the show before how the Jobs and Skills Summit is coming up, and of course now it's only ten days away. Uh, and in the lead up to it, there's been all these mini summits in all these different areas. I know Bill Shorten's done one on the NDIS and the workforce in the NDIS, but also how the NDIS functions. I know that uh, Karina Garland, I think, is having one today in Chisholm about jobs and skills in Chisholm, which is a part of outer suburban Melbourne. Like people are doing them in all kinds of different ways and all kinds of different engagements, and and of course, the ACT itself, as we've discussed on the show before, is releasing a series of discussion papers. And we'll discuss the most recent one, which is about climate, which is, of course, very important. But at the same time, Peter Dutton has refused to participate in the Jobs and Skills Summit, says he will not go. Now, David Little Proud, leader of the Nationals, will be going. 
But not only are they not going, which look, they want to be oppositional, fine. They don't want to participate, fine. They're still licking their wounds, fine. But they've they've come up with all these little brain bubbles, you know, like the, there's brain bubbles about education and all these things that they didn't do in government. They've only been out of government less than three or less than four months. But there are all these little brain bubbles that they're floating in the media. And at the same time, Susan Lay, who is deputy leader of the Liberal Party, addressed an Aki conference, that's the Australian Chamber of Commerce and Industry, addressed that conference yesterday and basically said, you can't trust Labor on anything. Whatever they're going to do, they're just going to support unions. Look at what they did on family domestic violence leave. They backed the ACTU against the interest of business. Now, that's an incredibly out-of-touch position for for the leader or deputy leader of a major political party to take. And it's nothing but destructive. It offers no vision. It offers no hope for the future. It offers no constructive engagement. It's literally going to a stakeholder group and just slagging out labor, slagging out the labor movement. Like it's quite bizarre. And it goes to- We're not really in contest of ideas territory where, you know, I just find it hilarious that they're running with the Oh, yeah, so Labor just keep talking about, you know, Scott Morrison's secret ministry thing. And what are they doing about the cost of living crisis and, you know, the jobs and skills crisis? And it's like in four months, literally more than you've done in the past nine years, <laughs> given the fact we inherited the problems from you. But also there's a jobs and skills summit. Look, this is it's this weird sort of parallel reality. That- and they've cr- created Skills Australia. They've created a new agency. They've... Advocated for and achieved an increase in the minimum wage. Advocating for an increase in wage for wages for aged care workers. I mean, they're, they're working constructively with business and unions. I mean, this is why we always say join your union, and it's so great to see. Uh, you know, we've heard recently lots of people have been joining on through our link, AustralianUnions.org.au/slash/wow. That's W-O-W to join, because labor the labor movement is actually interested in working people, whether they're in a job or looking for a job or can't work for some reason or have retired from a lifetime of contribution, like that's actually our thing. <laughs> the dead giveaways in the name. But this is the other thing. You and I were talking about this the other day, that like the likes of Susan Lay act as if the relationship of the Labor Party to the union movement is some kind of dastardly <laughs> secret. And it's like, Susan, I think, I think it's pretty clear in the name, mate. Like, Labor Party. 150 years. If you haven't figured it out, Susan, oldest what have you been doing? Oldest political party in Australia. Oldest political party in Australia. Rather a lot of iconography of the of the union movement associated with the history of the party. It's just, it's full on. But, guys, you're never going to believe this, but the Labor Party has a relationship to the union movement. Yes, because... <laughs> capitalists kept depressing us and we thought, you know, we should get in on this electoral representation of our interests thing. Indeed. And speaking of the electoral representation of our interests, the ACTU this week has released its climate plan for the Jobs Summit, which, Van, you and I, we both obviously climate activists. We went to the Paris Climate Conference. I was very fortunate and privileged to be able to, in my previous uh, employment represent the interests of the Australian trade union movement at that conference, you know, and was very proud of the fact that we got the just transition wording in the Paris Agreement. Certainly not my work, the work of many other 
much more engaged and capable and intelligent people than me. And absolute incredible comrades from the global movement of trade unions. And, and Sharon was, Burrow. Is and Sharon the, Burrow, who is the Australian with the largest democratic mandate in the world. That's um, right. Who is, of course, the secretary of the ITUC, the International Trade Union Confederation, which represents the unions of unions. It's the union of unions of unions and led by an Australian, which is just absolutely exceptional. And yeah, I mean, it was it was pretty incredible. Um, and you and I had quite a galvanizing experience in Paris, meeting other environmentalist trade unionists and hearing about the work like the amazing uh, nurses union in New York who are like, climate change is a health issue and it affects our members who were just, yeah. I just, I will cite that speech until my dying day, I think. But yeah, like anybody who is trying to tell you that the interests of unions and the interests of climate action are somehow separate is lying to you. Yeah, that's right. They're trying to divide working people from each other because the reality is, as this paper shows, that a properly managed transition to renewable and low emissions uh, technologies will create jobs. So this report draws on research that um, the ACTU has done previously uh, with with actually with uh, business uh, bodies as well, which shows 395,000 good jobs can be created by becoming a renewable energy superpower and that $89 billion in export revenue Will be generated into Australia. Now that that is a huge amount of money. That would put it in the top sort of three export industries uh, that we can have here in this country. And of course, you know, the paper really goes into some detail. We'll obviously post links on social media for that paper. Uh, I don't want to go into all of the detail, but some of the really key things that I think are really important for us to talk about setting up a national energy transition authority and doing that in a tripartite way. You know, the best innovations in this country have come where working people, business, government come together, community is involved, and we're actually working together. I think about things like superannuation here. I think about the way uh, Medicare functions in, in local communities. You know, I think about when uh, unions have been actually at the table of industry development, the the way we managed to actually keep the car industry going for so much longer than it would have would have if it was just up to the business suits in places like Detroit and Paris uh, and Munich, such an important mechanism. But of course, having that body without having any funding or having any mandate to actually support communities wouldn't wouldn't actually solve the issue. It would just be another body. So it does call for real investments in renewables, co-investment in low-carbon materials for building, for manufacturing, creation of local manufacturing for the renewable energy sector, uh, and of course, putting impacted communities really at the center of the discussion. And Van, we know from our interactions with trade unionists around the world, but also what's going on in Collie at the moment, how important this is. You know, the communities where high emissions industries are going to transition to low emissions industries can often be left on the scrap heap of the capitalist uh, caravan, if you like, as it goes 
through. Yeah. So spoiler alert, they don't care what happens to us. Yeah. Well, they just don't. They just well, don't. We had to invent an electoral manifestation of our movement so we could legislate to protect ourselves from them. And it's look, really that simple, everyone, by the way. There's, <laughs> there's no like there's no complex like historical intersection of factors here. Rather, a lot of people were like, you know, this industrialization thing could go really badly unless we assert ourselves. And look, NRG is a French company whose majority of its shareholders, you know, are in France. And yeah, it owns some uh, power stations in Australia. It, frankly, though, it does that for the purposes of profit. It doesn't do that in order to care about the Australian community. So, you know, what's happening in Collie in WA is that the WA state government has set up a transition authority. It has working groups. Uh, and one of the working groups, which I think is really important, and this is one of the things that I picked up from the experiences of the German coal industry, was that the one of the working groups is focused on celebrating the positive contribution that the collie uh, power industries have made to the state of WA. Because what we often find, or what I often hear, is this sort of sense that if you're in these high emissions industries now, you're a bad guy, right? Now, don't get me wrong. There are suits in boardrooms around the world who know they are destroying the planet and are doing it for profit. But there are many, many more people who are doing jobs that their parents did, that their grandparents did, that perpetuate life in a town that provides power to major cities around the world that were often lured to those jobs, lured to those towns on the bot at the prospect of contributing to building the success and the prosperity of a nation. So they're not. They're not villains at all. They're actually people who are being blamed or conveniently scapegoated. So this, there's a working group in the Collie transition that's about actually highlighting the positive contribution that the people of Collie, the workers of Collie have made to the economic development of WA. And I really hope that the, the ACTU Energy Transition Authority idea gets taken up by Elbow. Uh, in the summit, and that that's one of the groups that comes forward because we should celebrate that, you know. Yeah, and I think we need to put this in the context of who, like, who is to blame, and who is to blame is literally a dark cabal of shadowy capitalist suits who've known what the problems are, but for the sake of expedience around profit, have done nothing about them for over a hundred years, and it's like. If you use gas to cook at home or if you use gas to heat your home, that doesn't make you a bad person. I find it very interesting being lectured on the internet by, you know, self-appointed holy people about, oh, yes, well, you know, fossil fuels, you know, gas. And it's like you wouldn't, I don't think you're condemning yourself for using gas to heat your home or cook. I think yeah. you would say, you holy person, would say, oh, yes, well, you know, like what's the alternative? I've got to heat my home and cook. And the same applies to jobs. Like, yeah, there are alternatives. You can turn off the gas at home and freeze and you can not cook with gas and go on some kind of weird raw food trip. You can separate yourself from the modern world and all these political, but ultimately there will be a channel of accountability because these problems are structural. Yeah. Like if you can't, um, if you can make an excuse for yourself, holy person, about why you do things that are environmentally bad, like you use plastic 
or have a PFAS um, covered item in your home, for example, or use gas or God help you put petrol in your car and the rest of it, or, you know, use electricity, which parts of Australia is still generated through like coal burning power stations, coal fired power stations. If you don't blame yourself in that chain of command, I don't think you should blame people who work in those industries because there are origin points and structural relationships and intersectionalities. The reason why we have governments and should empower governments to make infrastructural um, decisions around direct supply and energy mixes and all of those things, that's that's where the focus is. So this abuse of people who work in primary industry, who work in mining communities, it's actually, by the way, morally reprehensible and bad activism because it attacks the shadow, not the substance. Yeah, here, here. And look, there are lots of programs that are starting to come online, particularly at a state level, and we'll start to see hopefully more at a federal level now that we have a Labor government federally. But I know in Victoria, for example, there are moves to reduce the the amount of gas appliances, you know, by transitioning homes to all electric. Now, as you say, that doesn't necessarily solve all the problems either because we're not yet at 100% renewable. But, you know, it's about how do we bring down our emissions over time in a way that doesn't leave low-income people to freeze to death or starve because they're unable to cook or heat their homes uh, or boil to death, you know, as as it gets hot in summer. People need air conditioning. So there's a lot of intersecting things here, and you're right, totally right, Van. You know, this is why I think that tripartite approach of having a transition authority is so important. It actually brings the voices to the table to go, well, this is what that will mean if we do that particular policy, this is how it impacts that community, that group of workers, the science around climate, whatever the issue might be, and it can actually be discussed and fully understood, which for the last decade, we just haven't had. The only voices that have been allowed in the room, you know, we all remember during the pandemic, you know, Josh Frydenberg literally being on the phone to Jerry Harvey to decide that, okay, yes, we will have, um, uh, a wage subsidy, even though the unions have been calling for it, even though it's happened in Britain. Well, now that Jerry Harvey wants it, we'll give it to Jerry Harvey. You know, that kind of uh, narrow casting, uh, sectional interest government is gone. And now we've got an opportunity. And the, and the job summit's such a good one. You know, I saw Unions New South Wales uh, just this week have said, you know, we need to rethink bargaining. Um, Tony Burke has said this previously as well that you know bargaining. This idea that 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 if people want to bargain across multiple employers and they want to do it and the employers want to do it somehow or another, it's still illegal or they've got to go to him and get a personal exemption is madness. You know, Unions New South Wales is saying, well, how come we're spending union members' time and money? bargaining on behalf of people who are not union members? Shouldn't we get paid something from those members for getting them better wages? Like these ideas get to now percolate and be, you know, discussed. Yeah. And we should be having these discussions. I mean, the overwhelming majority of Australians and surveys after surveys bear this out. Like I remember writing articles for The Guardian uh, just after the Liberals got elected in 2013 
that were about how Australians think that the taxation system should be more fair and rich people should pay a larger percentage of tax and that employment conditions should be fair and unions are actually a good thing, all of these things. And yet for nine years, what the overwhelming majority of the population said they wanted were legislated against in the opposite direction. Yeah. And now we actually get to have a conversation at a Jobs and Skills Summit and all these other summits that are going on in the media, in public policy, and again, I just want to say how absolutely wonderful it is to watch the 7.30 report with Sarah Ferguson and Laura Tingle and this this adult conversation about politics in this country, you know, done by these extraordinary journalists who are on top of their facts, who don't resort to cliches, who ask penetrating questions, who are, who are fair and incisive, like is just making such a difference. It's such a difference. It's reminding me of the glory days of the 1980s when you used to have intelligent conversations about the reforms that were going on in the economy. It's amazing. Well, I think interestingly, if people are listening to this before 7.30 on Wednesday, the 24th of August, Sally McManus, the leader of the trade union movement, will be on the 7.30 report. And as I understand it, he's going to talk about the union movement's positioning going into the Jobs and Skills Summit. And of course, you and I, Van, will talk more about that on next week's episode as well. You know, we expect it's good to see people putting out ideas. And look, you know, uh, I think it was the CEO of Aki, he, he gave a press club address, I think, last week. And look, most of what he said, I disagree with. He said some interesting things that I think uh, are worth considering when it comes to skills and some interesting things when it comes uh, to how we manage temporary migration. But, you know, that's that point of having this period of debate and discussion. So, you know, let's let's have that debate, let's have that discussion because if we don't, what we end up with is what we're seeing in sectors like higher education. Ben, I want to talk about higher education because in the last couple of weeks in particular, some issues have really bubbled to the surface. Um, and on the on the back of what we've seen at Swinburne University locking out workers who are taking quite moderate industrial action, things like not checking off attendance lists. They've actually cut people's pay for that. Uh, We've seen Sydney Uni going on strike for the fourth time over proposed pay cuts. Uh, And of course, Curtin University proposing real wage cuts as well. I actually spoke to Scott Fitzgerald from the NTEU, the National Social Education Union in WA over the weekend. It was a really great conversation. and, you know, I don't think people realize just how corporatized and casualized the higher education system has become because there hasn't been a national discussion about it. It's just kind of happened in the background. Yeah. I mean, it is absolutely shocking what's gone on in higher education. And there's an ideological context to this. You know, the old, you know, crusading cultural conservatives of the Liberal Party, people like John Howard and the cabinet he amassed around him, coagulated around him is probably a better verb, Um, they saw higher education as a cultural mechanism that would wrest control of society away from them. You know, they blamed the 1960s on the universities. You know, let's remember, of course, that Anthony Albanese cut his teeth as an activist, as a a student at Sydney Uni fighting for the creation of a political economy department, very famous photos there, and saw in higher education this mechanism where, where Kids from working class families like, oh, me and Ben 
would go might go to university and get some funny ideas about how the world should be run in a fairer way. So Turns out he was right, by the way. <laughs> during that, yeah, I mean, it's totally true. I mean, I didn't – when you go to university and you get that class consciousness and you realise that things are different from you because you're a kid from a working-class family, let me tell you, you can't pull it out. You can't reverse it. The process no. has begun. You're in it for life, mate. And clearly it's those kind of educations and that kind of – social heft, cultural heft, which has transformed so many institutions in this country for the better. And, of course, the Liberals wanted to shut all of that down. So beginning in the Howard era, you had these massive cuts to universities. My university, the University of Wollongong, praise be upon its name, lost its physics department. And, of course, another nine years of coalition government we've just gone through, outsourcing, managerialism, these unbelievable workloads. You've got a a three-day-a-week job as an academic in this country. Realistically, you're working six days a week. Well, this is what what Scott was saying. So, I mean, you know, it was a really eye-opening conversation because I was sort of, I guess, intellectually aware of some of these things, but the the conversation was just just startling. So you've got you've got academics who are casual. Uh, who are doing multiple subjects as unit coordinator, that is, they're in charge of the subject, they're a casual, they often have no expertise in some of the subjects that they have to teach, they have no experience managing other staff, they're not remunerated for their time outside of the classroom or outside of very specific hours that are allowed for marking or dealing with student uh, inquiries. But at the same time, you've got very highly paid managers, often from outside academia. Um, you know, I kind of call it, I said to Scott, it sort of reminds me of like the, the failed capitalist class where if you couldn't make it as a mining executive, don't worry, we'll shove you into a position at Curtin University. Uh, and they're on huge salaries. I mean, I did a little bit of research on this because, uh, you know, I like numbers. So over the last three years, half of Australia's universities, so this is during the pandemic, while they've been sacking staff, they've, they've made- They didn't get JobKeeper. Let's they didn't remember, get JobKeeper. like they, Jerry Harvey's employees got it, but workers at Australia's universities did not get it. Right. So they, over half- the universities in Australia paid the vice chancellor, the person leading the university, an annual salary of at least a million dollars in at least one of those years, right? Half of the remaining paid their vice chancellor a salary of more than 900000 which means three quarters of the people leading universities in this country have been paid a salary of more than $900,000 in at least one of the last three years. And most of those, quite frankly, and I'll post the link so you can see for yourself, got paid more than $900,000 in each of the last three years. Now, that's obscene when you consider that that is almost double what the Prime Minister gets paid. And you're talking about universities that have 70% casualization. In one school, in the conversation we were having, it was indicated to me that in one school at one university, almost 80% of the staff were casual. The only non-casual staff were effectively there to manage the rosters of the casualized staff who were doing the actual teaching. Oh, it is amazing. It is absolutely amazing. They were the most rapidly casualized industry in Australia. You know, for people who haven't been part of the university system, 
there's this image of universities as being these bastions of privilege, you know, the ivory tower or something we hear about, oh, you're academics in the ivory towers. And once upon a time, it's true. If you had a job at a university, you had a job for life, they used to have tea trolleys at the University of Sydney and you'd get 11s and the rest of it. And But a lot of the images that people outside the system have of universities come from fantasies that that we see on TV or in movies. Like it is not, we do not live in Brideshead Revisited in this country. We certainly don't live at Hogwarts and universities are cash-strapped, like over-pressurised, under-resourced, oversubscribed, you know, like Scott was making syndicate issuing factories now. Yeah, well, Scott was making this point, right, that at, at universities like Curtin and, and universities right around the country, rankings are such a big part of it now and not just, you know, where your course ranks among other universities in Australia but around the world. And, in fact, that there are some people, some of these failed mining executives who sit on the boards of the universities or go in as executives who who say things like, we're going to compete with Harvard and MIT, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Now, Harvard has an endowment that, you know, a fundraising pool that generates something like $2 billion a year in revenue for that university. There is, you could combine all of the assets of all of the universities in Australia and you would not have that level of endowment that that one university has. So this idea that we're going to create courses at universities in regional WA or regional Queensland or regional Victoria, regional anywhere that are going to compete for students with that university is just, it's insane. Like it's a, it's capitalism gone mad, but put with blinkers on that somehow or another, that's what we're trying to achieve. That's and not the purpose of higher ed. really crazy corporatized decision. So for example, the nearest university to us, Federation Uni in Ballarat, Gippsland, you know, a number of campuses, axed their arts department recently. Yeah. Because, oh, yeah, well, you know, like. Yeah, well, they, they did bring it back, although they yeah, have scaled it, it. Yeah, but yeah, they brought it back because the union, the NTU, went absolutely bonkers and demanded its reinstatement. I mean, there are some extraordinary academics doing really important research um, particularly in things like welfare and the history of doll policy and really important contemporary issue staff in that faculty. And, but you know, this corporatized cost cutting decision was made. And it's, you can tell that the people making these decisions are not from anything like and like a, a, a background that comprehends why universities exist and what makes somewhere like Harvard, Harvard or Berkeley like Berkeley or Cambridge or, you know, the yeah. great universities of the world understand investment in community. It's actually really important to have an arts faculty, not only for the people who study arts and the research generated by the people who study arts, but it's actually really important to have proximity of people who study arts to people who study science and commerce and engineering and architecture and all these other different disciplines that actually that community of scholarship and that ongoing conversation by people who are specialists in different things talking to one another is actually how we generate something like policy cohesion and like shared knowledge and invention and innovation. Like that's actually the educational mission. And some like nitwit going, 
So why don't we like even teach sociology? It's because it's important, love, because it's actually really important for understanding the context of why we freaking do anything. Yeah, look, and I, I mean, the conversation with Scott was so good and in-depth and and I apologise that I haven't been able to kind of communicate everything, but the, I'll, I'll leave this discussion on two points. One, there are currently university administrators who have no concept of how a university works, who are getting people who are not experts in a particular field to teach things because they think it will make money for the university. That I think is a scandal and should be absolutely investigated. And that's no fault of the worker involved, but absolutely on university management. Um, and you know, this is, this is across multiple universities. We've had reports of this happening. You and I have heard these stories before. So it's not surprising to hear them. Uh, hear them again. Uh, we know Jason Clare hasn't said much in this space yet. I suspect that it's probably because the NTU, National Tertiary Education Union, is going through its elections at the moment. Um, and quite frankly, that is a major stakeholder that needs to be engaged in reform, like we were talking about before. We want stakeholders at the table having discussions. Jason Clare is doing that in education on a primary and secondary and early childhood level at the moment. But, you know, the National Tertiary Education Union elections are on. I don't know all of the candidates, but I do know uh, Damien Carl, Alison Barnes and Gabe Gooding. I've met them. I've had interactions with them. We know them to be dedicated, passionate, effective members of the sector. We know that they're absolutely out there campaigning their socks off. Uh, I think they got a win recently in uh, at the University of Western Sydney uh, where they got uh, about 150 casuals made permanent. Um, it's a it's a small victory in the broader scheme, but it's important because it sets a precedent. As Scott was saying, it means that other universities, uh, the NTU can go, well, look, if they can do it, we can do it. Uh, so that's important. And look, we wish them the very best in their campaigns because it is so important that sector has effective representation uh, and whoever wins is going to have a massive job ahead of them because uh, reform is clearly needed. Oh, absolutely reform is needed. And, like, the sector is so important because it is potentially transformational in terms of society. Like, it is really important to give diverse Australians the opportunity of academic specialisation so they can make a contribution that befits their proclivities and their talents to their country. Like I, um, you know, have had a very diverse employment background. The thing that I have been best at and made my best social and economic contribution at as an individual were the skid that were the in the profession that was taught to me at university. You know, and that's allowing people to do what they're best at is actually what makes a functioning society. Absolutely. And I will, we do need to move on to the good news, but I will also say that not everyone will go to university and that's okay too, because it's about, as you say, Van, 
giving people the opportunity to do what they're best at and make their best contribution. Uh, and for many people, that will mean TAFE, that will mean uh, apprenticeships, that will mean other forms of skill development. Or and that's why the jobs- business and all of those yep. opportunities. And the point is that all of those opportunities should exist for people. Absolutely. And that's what the Jobs and Skills Summit, and that's why I'm so excited about Skills Australia and Brendan O'Connor, who's the Minister for Skills, is just so onto that. I love how it makes your heart flutter that Brendan O'Connor is the Minister for Skills because it's true. He's really into it. He did this amazing press appearance with Albanese the other day with Albo. They were at a, a jeweler run by an Italian-Australian family in Sydney and you can tell yeah. Albo was just loving it. And that the two of them, it was kind of nerdy. They were both really into it, talking about opportunities for apprenticeships and skills development and was on the ABC. And I'm not quite sure it would have got as long a coverage on a slightly busier news day. But it was really, it was just, it was some beautiful skills wonkery and you don't get to see a lot of that in this country. It was kind of exciting. Well, maybe we need a bit more of it because I know a lot of successful countries, you know, Germany, that's absolutely the case. Look, moving on to the good news, uh, there is some actually really, I think this is really phenomenally good news, Van. Oh, this is brilliant news. And it's so funny because I was I was even thinking about this this week because it's been coming up. This is good news that Ben found, full credit to Ben, who knows how to make me happy, which is why I married him, which is about PFAS. Now, PFAS is what they call a forever chemical. I believe it's a bond between carbon and fluoride. Am I right? Chemistry, not this is what I mean. Let people do what they're good, they're good at. Chemistry, not necessarily one of my skills. Yep, yep. Yeah, no, that's about right. And these are, these are not organic chemicals and they were created to serve various industrial functions they use them a lot in the united states they use them on non-stick cookware they're used in waterproof clothing waterproof makeup um and 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 obviously in um fire retardant and fire retarding foam the thing about PFAS is that it's a forever chemical and this bond between them once created you know is very difficult to pull asunder as in nobody's thought you could pull it asunder. And that means that it, they're also quite dangerous chemicals. They've been associated with all kinds of risks. It turns out the companies that have manufactured these chemicals have known about these risks, and this was the news that I latched onto, for 70 years this came out, that they were suppressing evidence that strongly suggested that there were um, bad health outcomes from contact with these chemicals. The other piece of news around PFAS is that recently it's been found in rain. How great! And mm. rending uh, rainwater undrinkable, which is which is an issue, really. Actually, rainwater should be should be pretty drinkable. But the good news, the good news here is that they have found a way to break the bond between the carbon and the fluoride that creates the PFAS. So. Uh, uh, there's a researcher by the name of Brittany Trang who works in Dictel's laboratory uh, and has been working on this as part of her doctoral thesis. Essentially what they've done is they have found that there's a long tail of unyielding carbon fluoride bonds and at one end of the molecule there is a charge group that often contains charged oxygen atoms. Now bear with me because it's a bit sciencey this. What they do is they target that group of atoms by heating the PFAS in dimethyl sulfoxide 
and sodium hydroxide. Now, sodium hydroxide, you might actually have seen this on the back of like soap packets and things because that's a, it's an ingredient that can be found in common household uh, cleaning products. Uh, and what this does is it decapitates the head group. This is the words from the article. Decapitates the head group, breaks the bond, and leaves the rest and creates essentially an opening or an Achilles heel into the PFAS that allows them to break it down into carbon and fluorine, which effectively become inert and and non-dangerous. They're able to be dealt with in a non-dangerous way. This is a huge development, potentially has massive positive repercussions for millions of people around the world. PFAS has been carcinogenic. Uh, in many communities. And we know places like Townsville uh, had a massive PFAS problem because of the use uh, of PFAS firefighting foams uh, at the military uh, base there. We know that that's been an issue. We know that it's been an issue in firefighting around the world. We know that the non-stick use of PFAS as a non-stick element has potentially caused cancer for, for many, many people. This is the idea that we'll be able to break it down. Now, of course, this is early science. This is the good news section. Um, there's a long way to go before we, we're pulling it out of everything. But this idea that we can now do it, uh, huge, you know, it, it turns 70 years of scientific belief on its head uh, and gives us hope for the future. So I think it's a great news story. I heart science. I heart science. I heart science. Thank you, scientists. Any scientists listening to this, we love you. We've got your back. Absolutely. Absolutely. And of course, where does so much of our science come from? It comes from our higher education institutions. Maybe something we should think about when we think about higher ed rather than just thinking of it as a commodity to be sold to students coming from overseas. Now, we have to move on. We've been talking for an hour, Van. Of course, we've had a huge couple of weeks with people coming to our supporter page, that's buymeacoffee.com slash week on Wednesday and becoming Buck a Week members, Extend the Reach members, Cadre supporters, overwhelming, overwhelming number. But have you got the list in front of you? you ready I do, to I do. Our Cadre who um, make financial contributions to keep the show going, we love it. We encourage you to do that because the more you help us, the more we can promote the show and make all those lists and, you know, have discussions about these ideas. If you don't have any money, you can help us by sharing the show on social media and on Twitter. That's just as good by promoting it to your friends, family, you know, workmates. That helps us. Anyway, I'm going to read the list of the cadre because they're the ones who put the dollars behind the show and we want to say thank you every time we do an episode. Okay. Karina Bali at Jane C. Campbell, Leona Gibbons, Someone Fiona, Evergreen Vs, Gyoto at Jed Carney, Christine Cole, Justin Dando, Tamara James Bromman, Punch Drunk Veteran at Jenny Forster 7, Joe Fleming, Andrew Pascoe, Cassandra Tui, Addison Official, Ian Hampson, no Twitter for me, Hannah Honda, Sam Harriet, Alexandra Sutherland, Matt Bush, no relation, Richard Sands, I'm not on Twitter. Ben Robbie, Brash Daniels, Kylie Phillips, Atlee Archer, Linda Cartwright, Atlee Ann Shingles, Louise Moran, Donna Chapman, I don't have a Twitter, my name is Susan Myers, at Kerry Nash 20, Billy 3 McCade, Karen Will Robinson, Narissa Simon, at Katagal, Lauren and Ash, Matthew Adley, Adnaranga Medjin, John Sharpen, Peter Bath, Aaron Rollins, Louise Watson, also known as at Red, White and Blue Lou. The Extend the Reach supporters are Stuart Munn at, and at Vic M. Bit, Adrian Valente, Maritza at Caridale 68, Frank Nihus, 
uh, Erica Pizzuti, Claire, Joe Lapino, Steph, Rachel Fitzpatrick, Kerry Arthur, Pauline Bate, Kathy Birchie, Kirsten Black, Melanie Dinning, Jodie A, not on Twitter, Karen, Penelope Judge, Jane Holloway, Spirit of Anger and Hope, Vicky Hanna at Kane Not, Love Your Work at Didham, Sharon Kelly, Beck and Lola, Richard Graver, Someone, Vita W, Tanya George, Nandita Hannah, Maroyer, Moira, Moira, Louise Hawker, not Maroira, Megan Weckett, Graham Oxley, Beck Cody, Tracy Lucas, Sandy Honan, Atgal Vest, Greg Martin, Trainer, Amy Fawcett, not on Twitter, Sarah, Elian, and Andrew Ivor Spillett, Andrew Bryan, Peter OC, Linda, Sam Hadid, Kip Addison, Lizette Twiddle, Buncombe Basher, Katie Ward, at the Real Neville Longbody, Sandy Baumgart, not Sandy B, and Renee McGee. You guys are amazing. Thank you so much and congratulations to all of our uh, cadre and Extend the Reach. And uh, I've been told now that on Buy Me A Coffee, if you want to change your level of support, you can now do that. You don't have to cancel and renew. You can just uh, pick a new change. Now, Van, it's time for us to go. Of course, we will, I will do the weekend wrap on Sunday as usual. You are, People can catch you at the Byron, Byron Bay, Bay Writers Festival, which is this weekend in Byron Bay. Friday and Saturday, I think you're appearing, aren't you? I believe so. That's right. Well, until then, love you, darling. I love you too. I miss you. Miss you too. Bye. After the dog. Bye.